Hello and welcome to Coffee Chats with Researchers. My name is Katie Butner and here we are at season two. Um, I'm thrilled you're here, I'm thrilled you're listening, and I'm excited for you to listen to our first episode of this second season with Assistant Professor Ava Rai from Loyola University. And we talk a lot about, she's definitely a new scholar, so for those of you who are considering entering into the professor uh, track or becoming a university scholar, uh, this is a great one to start with and a great one to listen to. Um, she speaks a lot about what it means to have culturally responsive instruments and especially how we understand the presence of domestic violence in immigrant and minority communities. She talks about uh, an in-law abuse measure that she created, which is incredibly valuable, fascinating, and just a really engaged conversation. So as always, grab your coffee or drink of choice and stay tuned for this episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to have a conversation with me. So we start every episode and every conversation with a who's in the room. So if you could introduce yourself and just tell me about your work and kind of what brings you here to this conversation. Sure. Thank you for reaching out to me. And I'm really excited to talk with you today. So my name is Abha Rai and I am an assistant professor at the School of Social Work, Loyola University, Chicago. I'm also the associate director for the Center for Immigrant and Refugee Accompaniment, which is also within the School of Social Work at Loyola University. So my area of research interest broadly relates to immigrant and refugee well-being with a sub-focus on gender-based violence research. I do a lot of gender-based violence research with diverse communities and populations with a focus mostly on immigrant and minoritized communities. So within gender-based violence, I have a few different lines of inquiry. I'm interested in understanding and exploring ways in which domestic violence manifests in immigrant and minoritized communities, which can be different from how it can look like in Western communities or how it's depicted in the evidence. Uh, so that really intrigues me. I'm also interested in understanding how culturally responsive instruments can be utilized to capture unique ways in which violence can manifest in immigrant communities, such as through in-laws. So a lot of my work's also related to in-laws abuse. Uh, and I'll talk about a measure that I built for in-laws abuse, you know, in a few moments. And within gender-based violence, another sort of sub-focus is I look at victimization as experienced by men and women. Because especially within the immigrant literature, I've sort of seen that there's a deficit in understanding how men are or can also be victims. It's sort of mostly focused on women or, you know, individuals that identify as women. So I look at all of these different aspects within uh, violence prevention, mostly pertaining to immigrant and minority communities, which is why I am here and which is why I'm you know, excited to talk more with you about my work and, you know, hear from you as well. Awesome. That was very good and so clear. I love it. And I'm so intrigued and excited by hearing some of what you've noted. I haven't really had an opportunity to talk to anyone so far who's done very specifically focused immigrant work, but also what you're mentioning about culturally responsive tools and like measurements. It's a very important and probably what I would imagine we would say is a gap. I won't assume, but I'm going to say it's a gap that the gender-based violence work lacks 
just a lot of those tools that would support the research moving forward rather than just right applying. So I'm interested in and excited to hear more about where that journey has taken you to get to trying to address some of the gap there. And I know you mentioned about developing that tool. I wonder if before we talk about that, could you speak on what led you to this work? What led you to being in this area of focus and what might have been maybe some of the big turning points that really directed your career to this point? Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think that's a great question. I think about that as a scholar pretty much every day. And I say this because I think I try to ground most of my work in the community. So I really love or try to engage for the most part in community-engaged research, meaning that my participants or my agencies are really key for me. And that's where all of these, I guess, different topics or lines of inquiry even come in from. Because I hear from my community, for example, the culturally responsive instruments. So I've seen growing up, I'm obviously from India. So growing up in the South Asian community, I have seen instances of violence in and around my friend group, extended family members, so on and so forth. And it's not as direct as, you know, you wouldn't really be able to tell that it's domestic violence instantly. You might think that it's maybe a gender role stereotype or this is how it is. And that's kind of what we hear sometimes growing up in South Asian households that, you know, your husband or, you know, your partner is someone that you have to listen to. You know, it gets better. Maybe have a kid. It will get better with time. So... I guess witnessing all of that and listening to all of that, it became clearer to me that it's not okay. And this is domestic violence. It just looks different from what we may read about in articles or what we may think about when we watch the news or when we see police reports. So those cases where people would go to the police or what we would read in the news could be extremes, but there's other ways. And a common way that I've seen in, you know, immigrant communities is in-laws abuse because it's a collectivist culture and in-laws are part of the family. So they really do decide to have a say pretty much and not all in-laws or, you know, not to make generalizations at all. But for the most part, they will have a key role in deciding, you know, when you should have kids or your reproductive mm -hmm. health or your sexual life, you know, sure. when you can work, who you can talk to, so on and so forth. And these coercive tactics of control are really ways in which they're trying to control you. And there's also elements of gaslighting in there. So this is all unique to certain communities. You may not see it happen that much, maybe in a Western context, because the culture is individualistic compared to a collectivist culture. So that's why domestic violence can look different. And I think witnessing all of these different aspects, learning more about how gender role stereotypes can be advantages to, you know, a group and disadvantages to another. I guess that's where my journey, I would say, began. And then moving here to the States, when I started focusing on my PhD and my dissertation, I really looked at domestic violence in the South Asian community again, because it just would be easier for me to collect data and have access to the community. And the more conversations I had with individuals and service providers, just to sort of design my questions for my survey, the more clearer it became that I wasn't able to use just a Western instrument. I couldn't take one of the standardized fields and be like, that's it, I will get a prevalence rate. Mm -hmm. If I did that, and, you know, if you actually look at the literature and, you know, South Asian or immigrant communities, 
maybe it'll point and say that physical violence is actually low. But then there's other forms of violence, which is like economic or in-laws or immigration abuse, which could be your in-laws or husband taking away your passport or immigration papers and threatening to not file for green card or not allowing you access to the dentist because they're the primary visa holders. So that really, I guess, reinforced my interest in this area. And, you know, it almost became a matter of giving back to the community to continue staying invested. So these have been some of my main turning points, if you may call them, to continue staying motivated and interested in this subject. And another thing I will point out is this whole interest or newfound love to study domestic violence experienced by men. Because again, it goes back to this idea or notion of gender role stereotypes. And this may not be like a popular opinion. So it may be pretty unpopular because the literature also says that women are disproportionately impacted by domestic violence. But at the same time, a lot of my inspiration, support for my dissertation comes from men around me in my life, like my husband, my father, my cousin, my brother. So I do think that it's sad that we're still in this day and age, we're still living in this dichotomy of sure. men as perpetrators and women as victims. Yeah. So I do think that it's important that we expand this conversation and make sure everyone has the opportunity to have their voice heard. And even if you think about the violence against Women Act, it's titled Violence Against a Women Act. So right. how approachable or how easy would it be for a male, you know, survivor in sure. experiencing violence to go to that? So yeah, I guess these have been some of my main trajectory leading me up to my lines of inquiry. Yeah, there's, you know, there's seven different conversations in there, but I do think where you just landed and sort of where you led us to the conversation around that gender dichotomy. Can you speak more to what you're learning, what you're seeing, especially as you look at the data or start to move into that aspect of inquiry that I think there's a lot of people or there's been conversations where we say we need to acknowledge that violence in relationships <laughs> happens across a gender spectrum across a gender dichotomy for sure. And also the roots of the gender-based violence movement um, or the roots of understanding and addressing domestic violence are very much founded in a women's movement. So very gender specific. And there's really great strides to expand that. But I also think it's not always in the action, I guess. It's a smaller pool, a really small pool of actually applying the data collection methods, the actual learning. There's, I think, a desire, but the application of it is still really small. It even to me gets back at what you're saying about or the work to make culturally responsive tools. Our tools are also very gender focused. Our services are also very gender focused. Our laws are very gender focused in those ways. So for you, as someone who is shifting and actively in the data, what are you seeing? Where do you see there being the most support for a next step? What would you want people to know even, right? If they're going to listen and they're going to be like, okay, I'm taking this away. What would you say is the thing that you'd want them to pay attention to or talk to? What's that next step in that work, especially for you as you consider your scholarship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the reason why I'll say this sort of as a preface to what I'll say next is that when I was coming up with questions for my dissertation, I used an existing instrument and I modified it. But a lot of the language that was in the instrument was to the effect of if you curtail your wife from going out of the house, is this emotional abuse? 
And then if you slap your wife, this is physical abuse. So the language was very, you know, I'd already kind of assumed that men are perpetrators in the language and women will be someone who experienced violence. So I did a little pilot test of all the questions and I sent it to about like 14, 15 people. And I was like, give me feedback. And there were men and women in the pilot study. And some of them were my friends. So I got a lot of feedback. One person decided to stay anonymous and they were really upset <laughs> at the language that was used. And I didn't even think of it that much until then, how language can be such a problem and how we already assume that a particular gender is perpetrating crime and a particular gender is experiencing it. So after I got that feedback, I tried to neutralize the language and I said that one partner to the other, so on and so forth. So there's no one perpetrating crime or no one experiencing it, then it would be really up to them based on whatever they wanted to say. So when I did that, I got back responses and the responses showed that in-laws abuse actually was, I think it was 19% in men and about 21% in women or the rates were really close. The prevalence mm. rates were really close. And similarly, prevalence rates for, you know, some other types of abuse that I looked at in my dissertation as well were also close. It wasn't like men are not experiencing violence at all. And I had about 450 to 500 people in my samples. It was pretty sizable. It wasn't that there was, you know, 1% that I identified as male. So that was really eye-opening for me. And after that, I kept using that as my starting point to collect more and more data to look and see if this is a problem that's happening outside of the South Asian community also, or is there something so special and unique about this community? But when I collected data from immigrants in general, first and second generation immigrants, I continued to see that there are men who are still experiencing violence. So it's not something that's so unique within this community, but it's because maybe it's anonymous and they have this opportunity to let me know and they know that I will never know who they are and I will never be able to judge them. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're sharing that in the survey, which was really, really eye-opening to me because up until now, I thought that, yeah, I think it does happen. But now I really have proof to say that, yes, look, it does happen. I have these prevalence rates. So I think one message or one takeaway would be to really not hesitate and make sure that we're talking about gender empowerment or gender equity by really allowing all genders to be in the conversation and making sure that our services are also accessible to everyone, irrespective mm-hmm. of, you know, who they are, what their gender is. So that we're really moving away from this idea that boys don't cry. Oh, you know, you're so whatever. Why are you crying? Why are you actually sure. like a girl? Right. So I would really say that. And I see this like in my house all the time when we were little or cousins, you know, you're crying. Why are you acting like a girl? So. I don't think that that's right, but that continues. You go on saying that so many times, it almost becomes true. Uh, So I would say that I think as a community, as a people that are studying violence prevention, I do think while it is true that women maybe are disproportionately impacted, it's not like others are not. So I do think we just have to have a more open mindset when we're thinking about this. Because when I started having these conversations, it wasn't the easiest. I don't think still that a lot of people are receptive to this idea. So I do think that we just need to like move away a little bit from all of our ideologies and the history of domestic violence and the feminist movements. I still think I am a feminist. I still think I believe in violence prevention and all of that. But I'm just trying to 
bring everyone to the table so everyone has the same opportunity. Absolutely. This is my reflection. So I'm not sure if you would agree, but that a lot of, especially in a Western context, addressing and understanding domestic violence and and gender-based violence is in that gender dichotomy. And also the one gender is always the victim, the survivor. One gender is always the perpetrator. And it makes me think of sort of where you started talking as well about when you think of your body of work, that it is a lot about understanding the context within specific communities, whether those are immigrant communities, whether those are refugee communities, whether those minoritized communities, because the reality of relationship and family and community don't look the same, but we're in a Western context and trying to apply that Western model to communities that don't inherently come with that same model for a variety of reasons. And so it makes me think of that at least around, we're trying to assume that families and communities that aren't rooted in just, again, that Western, very U.S. context, and that that might also contribute to how we see and understand violence, because maybe the way that we viewed it as a women's movement in the U.S. was very rooted in that experience of what it meant to be a female in that time. But that's not necessarily the population that we're talking about. And so it's almost the yes and element that both things can exist, but acting like everyone's going to fit into the West U.S. context of understanding violence prevention is leaving out a huge aspect of what this could look like. Mm -hmm. I agree, definitely. I do think, you know, thinking about the South Asian culture or the minoritized community culture, and also it's not one culture, it's cultures. But I do think a lot of those conversations are also rooted in women experiencing Mm -hmm. predominantly. And I do think that that could be true. That is true. I mean, when I read the reports, when I see the data, I do see that women are disproportionately impacted. I firsthand witnessed some experiences. But at the same time, I think we're social scientists or we're social science researchers. So I don't think one news article or like five news articles or whatever should sway us in one direction. I do think that those movements, while that may be true, maybe like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I do think that we just have to change and just provide equal opportunity for everyone to voice their opinion. Maybe men are not experiencing violence or maybe the rates are lower, but it's still happening. So I just want us to all be careful about the language we're using, even services. You know, a lot of domestic violence agencies will say we're providing services to women experiencing violence. So, you know, as someone, you know, if I were a male experiencing violence, where do I go? Like there's one or two agencies that will say we're also catering to male clients, my options become so limited. And then, you know, you have these like conversations around stigma of acknowledging abuse, you know, will you be seen as weak or so on and so forth. So then where do they really go? So I think that's where I'm coming from and not really from the stance of that maybe it just happens differently in India. Or, you know, in the South Asian community, but I do think that we just need to like expand and broaden our lens mm-hmm. on violence research in general. Right. Yeah. Overall, it has to take a broader look and has to be able to critique itself for who we're welcoming in and how we're defining yeah. victimology as well, for sure. 
So going back then to what you mentioned related to the tool that you created, and one of the things I wanted to offer space where I realized we're talking about your dissertation, but we didn't necessarily talk about what you did for your dissertation specifically. So if you want to give a brief what that scholarship looked like for you, and then to talk a bit about what you created. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Thank you so much. For my dissertation, I looked at violence experienced by men and women in the South Asian community. So I looked at prevalence rates. I looked at perceptions. I also looked at what does violence mean and how does it manifest? And then I also looked at this idea of help giving. So I'm also interested in the role of bystanders. So it's a pretty like holistic lines of inquiry that I have. So who are more likely to provide help or when should bystanders intervene? And if and when they intervene, who would they recommend individuals experiencing violence contact for support? Would they go to the police? Would they go to the agency? So on and so forth. I did a three article dissertation. All of my articles are actually out. So this is a little plug for yeah. people interested. <laughs> Success. So I, I looked at that for my dissertation. And uh, most of the work that I'm currently working on is out of my dissertation or some of my past experiences. However, I'm still starting to or taking learnings from my dissertation. I'm trying to expand to communities beyond South Asian. So that's something new that I'm working on. Coming to the measure that I was talking about, this is, to my knowledge, one of the first instruments to measure in-laws abuse and it's called SMILE. So just like SMILE, the word SMILE, it's called SMILE. SMILE is an acronym for scale to measure in-laws exploitation and abuse. So that's what SMILE stands for. And in my dissertation, I looked at, it has four items. So I have items around different kinds of abuse that can manifest through in-laws and really looked at validating it with the South Asian community. And I did a little EXA, exploratory factor analysis to make sure that all of my items are making sense, so on and so forth. But it was really cool to actually add this as a construct in my study because a lot of the mainstream measures, they don't really capture in-laws abuse. Sure. They don't capture other forms of abuse as well like they don't have questions on immigration related abuse or most of them don't but in-laws abuse is a kind of abuse in itself and I wanted right. to make sure that I'm really like accurately you know measuring it and using it yeah so it was really cool to develop this instrument and now continue testing it with different immigrant communities so I'm really excited to continue working on it. Was there a foundation of literature or because, right, like you're saying, and, and this is absolutely my lack of understanding in that space, but like, is there a foundation of literature or even framing literature for in-law abuse? Because like you're saying, it's not something that most people talk about or definitely not measure. So what was that like for you? And what did you really shape your base of like knowledge and literature to be as you explored that as a phenomena? There have been a few studies that have mm. been conducted with the South Asian community of a few scholars, Anita Raj out of Boston, or, you know, now they're in a different location, but they had conducted a few studies, you know, back in 2006. And there have been a few follow-up studies by a few different scholars or when scholars have been conducting qualitative studies, which is again something that's done more often in the South Asian literature and domestic violence than quantitative studies. So I did see a lot of qualitative interviews. I did see themes around violence or in taking over our lives or, you know, coercive tactics, so on and so forth. So those were, you know, some of my basis for even looking at in-laws abuse. And if you look at the immigrant power and control wheel, it does talk about, it doesn't specifically mention in-laws 
as abuse, but it talks about emotional abuse and growing up in the culture and just thinking about the culture of the community just really cannot be separated from violence. It just somehow makes its way in. So this idea of like a collectivist culture and what happens is to give you context in the South Asian communities and in a lot of other immigrant communities as well. When you're married, it's not really two partners that are getting married to each other. It's two families coming together. So ideally when, you know, female gets married, she moves into the in-law's house. So she leaves her house and for the most part, she goes to the in-law's house. It's not like you're kind of living in a nuclear family by yourself. So there's very little opportunity for adjustment. You're like overnight, you're married. Now it's starting to change because of this like modern culture and like dating and all of that happening. But it's a big, big deal, like moving from your own house to another person's house and trying to live with new people and they're like your parents. It's a lot. And that's not how things happen in Western communities or for the most part. Again, no generalization. So I do think that because of this key unique way in which marriage happens in these communities, there's no way that violence can just be physical, sexual, emotional, and just through the partner. It is the entire family. So another instance is dowries, dowry harassment, dowry death mm-hmm. is a big thing in the South Asian context. So you see that in the reports or news all the time. Um, also, you know, marital rape is also something that happens a lot. This is all cultural. And then where does a person go and seek any type of remedy if there's like no rules around it? So I think I grounded a lot of my work on these sort of understandings, my own lived experiences, and truly thinking about inter sectionality, like look at all of these different factors. So I truly tried to look at these identity related factors and I call it identitarian factors. I found this term myself. <laughs> so <laughs> I look at these different factors and I think that you really have to account for culture and it cannot be that far or that separate when you're thinking about violence in this context of immigrant and refugee communities. Does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I also want you to tell me the word that you made up again or that you I, coined. You didn't make it up. It's now trademarked. <laughs> it's called identitarian. Ooh, I like that. Okay, great. Let's make that happen. <laughs> that definitely answers my question. And I think what you're explaining and that element of both that there hasn't been a ton, but that these are the aspects that come into play when you're considering the need, the way to, and that there is some foundation of how we understand it as a lived experience and it's expanding. And now because of your work, there's an opportunity to support practitioners, I imagine, especially that primarily support communities that could be experiencing this or that might be at a higher risk for it, that they have an ability to screen for this and they have some stronger data to stand on to understand if this is something that's going on. I'm so grateful to hear about your work and I'm excited to be able to, when we send out this episode, also to be able to link to some things because I think there's going to be a lot of people that are really interested and curious to just dive more and learn more about what you're doing. When you think about your work moving forward, What do you see as the major gaps, the major areas where you would want to see the field of gender-based violence, especially as it relates to your work with particular communities? Where would you want to see more attention paid? Where do you see as the gaps, again, in, in the work? Where are you hoping for that to grow? 
Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Thank you for asking. So I definitely think, you know, similar to some of the gaps that I highlighted, I do think that as a community, um, you know, as a group of scholars, we definitely need to be thinking about culturally responsive ways of engaging with immigrant communities and building or, you know, using culturally responsive instruments to even collect prevalence rates. So I don't think that we can use a Western instrument and really think that we're able to capture or record rates mm. of violence in these communities. Sure. So I feel like we should definitely be doing that. Attention to be paid to survivors or individuals experiencing violence who could both be men and women. So that's another key area that I'm going to be focused on and I would encourage all of us to be focused on. And the third thing I will say is, you know, the role of bystanders. If you look at the literature, it does say that, especially in the immigrant minority communities, it does say that informal help seeking is more sought after compared to formal help seeking. So individuals are more likely to go to friends and family members than calling the police because there's also all of this fear around calling 911. What are they going to do? Are they going to deport me? What is going to happen to my kid? So I do think that as friends and family members, we really need to step in. We need to break all of these gender stereotypes and really encourage help seeking. You know, whoever is experiencing violence, really provide them with resources to seek help. A project that I'm working on is creating a bystander intervention. It's in development phase. It's called Break the Cycle, which is an acronym. I love acronyms, which is an acronym for bystander responsibility, uh, awareness and knowledge enhancement. So that's what break Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So the plan is to, you know, build this as an educational curriculum for bystanders, really, so that they understand ways in which they can intervene appropriately. So we're still in development and testing phase. So I'll share just minimal information about it. But this curriculum is culturally responsive and it looks at different types of abuse like immigration, in-laws abuse, financial, emotional, you know, sexual, psychological for South Asian immigrants. We've created it for the South Asian immigrant communities, but the goal is to translate it into different languages and make it culturally appropriate for different communities. And it also has conversations or snippets about abuse experienced by men and women, which mm. I'm most excited about. Yeah, awesome. So that's something I'm working on. And I would also encourage us as a community to really try and focus and empower bystanders so they can appropriately intervene and not just stand and witness violence. Absolutely. That's amazing. Good luck. That's a big project. That's a big set of work to sort of undertake. So good luck with that. Um, Do you have other projects in the works right now that you want to share or talk about? Sure. So I will uh, say that collective data, when we early on were experiencing COVID, we're still, so I didn't want to say pre-COVID because we're still, you know. Still in it. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Two, three years later, we're still in it. Um, So we collected some data on immigrant communities and their experience of well-being, but a big measure was also domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So I want to continue analyzing that data, um, you know, and look at violence as experienced by men and women, and also look at these different types of violence that have been experienced. So that's one project that I'll continue working on, the analysis and so forth. And then I already talked about break. And then another project that's sort of in the works, we're collecting some data, you know, some collaborators and I are collecting data with Africa 
Afghan refugees and service providers and their refugee integration into the U.S. And within mm. this project, I'm also collecting data or information on domestic violence, how that manifests in this newly arrived refugee group and how trauma, PTSD can relate to domestic violence. So that's another line of inquiry that I'll be focusing on this year. So there's a few different pieces going on, but I'm yeah. really excited to advance scholarship on, you know, all of these areas that are understudied. So it's cool because it's new. Yeah. There's not a lot of information out there. There's obviously some preliminary work here and there, but I do think it's really cool because you can actually move the field forward. And then because a lot of this is new, we really have voices from the community and from service providers. So it's really whatever they're saying, that's what's happening. Yeah. Translating. So it's a great example of how practice is informing research. Absolutely. Really enjoying it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like the benefit, even though it can be a daunting task or it can feel really vast, I would imagine there's the benefit of having an area that has been understudied. It sort of allows for maybe more creativity, more imagination and more engagement like you're sharing with communities because there isn't so much expectation of exactly the way something looks already. Like those elements are are still open for exploration and that can can really offer for more dialogue back and forth. So that's really great. I'm excited to see where it goes for you and, and just congratulations on all of the work that you're doing. It's amazing. And I, I'm sure it keeps you barely busy, free time, just all the time. <laughs> the last question that I ask everyone is if you had a unlimited a bucket of money, if someone was like, you know, you are the person I want to give some funding to, I love the work that you're doing. There's no ceiling. There's no requirements of what you have to do or things you have to produce. What would you do with it? What type of work would you do? Or like what research project would you do? Would you create services? Would you go on a crazy vacation? You can't do that. That's not an option. But <laughs> Yeah, well, first I would pinch myself and be like, is it really happening? Yeah. <laughs> Don't take it away. First off, uh, wake up from the dream I'm having. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess I will continue, you know, all of my work with the communities that I talked about. So I love these people communities and I love that I will have that money to do that work. I'll still do my bystander stuff. And then I guess another thing that I'm interested in, maybe in the future at some point, I do need like a million dollars for that. And I don't have that right now. <laughs> but I've been very interested in technology, using technology mm. for good. So I was interested, I was thinking about if I could develop some type of wearable technology that could be used by individuals who perpetrate. So like send them some type of signal and also people who are experiencing violence. Mm. it could somehow sense fear and then they could like hit a button and then it would give them some type of help so we could then appropriately intervene in the moment and, you know see how you can create change in the moment and not you know have to wait for people to die or experience violence and, you know, absolutely so, so I would definitely be interested in a few years to look into developing something like that once that's done it could be compatible with I don't know all of these different like Fitbits and phones yeah. and all of that so that would be really cool and it would allow us to lose lesser lives and really curtail the harm that could come out of violence because it would just be able to corrected in the moment. I know yeah. it's a big undertaking, but I think that's something I would try to explore in the future. So if anyone's interested and listening to this podcast, please contact me. 
Exactly. Yeah. And with that, I would also say last season, I guess, if you will, a couple of the folks that we talked to are tech facing people, whether they're creating technology for campuses or they work in using technology or even understanding technology facilitated abuse. So I know that's not exactly what you're you're noting, but they're doing really interesting, creative work in both understanding technology's role in perpetrating violence and also technology's role in how to serve and address and support survivors and also support perpetrators. So I would encourage you also to take a look the episodes have little bios or the couple that are that are tech facing and could be some people to keep in mind if ever you find yourself with a million dollars and ready to do that work. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. And just good luck and enjoy the rest of it's summer when we're having this conversation. So enjoy the rest of your summer and the quiet time while you get it. Thank you so much and for reaching out to me and for giving me this opportunity to talk more about my work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. You can always find more of these coffee chats on our website, which is vawconsortium.rudkers.edu. And of course, you can always reach out to us via social media or via email. We are always happy to hear from you with your thoughts, your questions, your feedback, or just generally to give us a hello. As always, stay curious, ask questions, drink coffee, and we will see you for our next episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers.